maybe 15 years ago, uh, I, I had a dream that I woke up knowing was from God, and, and a lot of you have heard this before, but, but in my dream, there's a couple, a man and a woman, who wants to kill a man, and the weapon that they are going to kill him with, they're holding in their hands between the two of them, they're facing each other, and they both have their hands out like this, and they are holding a helmet that looks like a full-face motorcycle helmet, but it also looks like a skull it also kind of looks like a demon, but this helmet was alive, and it was full of hate, and it was full of murder, and they were going to kill this man with this helmet, and he came up the stairs, and they were hiding on either side of the stair banister, and his head came up into view in the room, and they slammed that helmet down on his head, and it's a dream, so I can see these things, so in the dream, I see inside the helmet and these seven, eight, nine-inch knife blades come out of the helmet into his head and begin to spin like blenders. And it just destroys his skull and his brain. Just, But he doesn't physically die. He doesn't know anything has happened. He just keeps on smiling and keeps on walking. And the couple, they just back off and they watch. And he turns around smiling and he walks off back down the steps. And the couple that wanted to kill him were gleeful, they were excited, they were thrilled, they had done their job, they had destroyed him. Even though he had not physically died, they had done what they wanted to do. And that was my dream. And I woke up, and I woke up knowing exactly what it was. I knew what that meant. I think the, the Spirit told me that is a stronghold. They put a lie on that man's head, and now he believes it, and it has scrambled his thinking, and he's dead inside, even though he has no idea anything happened. And I, the word stronghold comes from this passage, the next verse, 2 Corinthians 10, 3-6. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ, and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. So... The word stronghold here that Paul says, my weapons of war, you notice he uses the word war and warfare and weapon and captivity. Um, this, is, this, is a, this is a fighting passage here. And we're, we're fighting not in the flesh. We are, we're fighting people, but we're fighting the only war in the history of the universe that's for the benefit of the enemy. We're trying to save their souls from hell. Hello? Nobody's ever fought a war to benefit the people they're fighting, but that's Christians. We're not fighting for ourselves. We're not fighting to prove we're right. We're fighting to save them from hell. There is war in life. Absolutely it is. And Paul says that our weapons, though, our weapons are not in the flesh, meaning in the physical world. We're not fighting with swords and bombs and airplanes and arrows and catapults like in their day. We're not warring against the, uh, according to the flesh. Our weapons are in the spirit, and they are mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. The word stronghold means castle or fort, where all of the cities in the ancient Middle East world had walls around them. So, so think of a walled city with gates. You've seen enough movies and know enough history to be able to picture that. But that's a stronghold, a fort, a castle. That's what, that's what Paul means, is this stone walls that people would hide behind to protect themselves. 
So the word stronghold is a castle, a fort, a fortress, a strong defense. And then Paul says our weapons are for pulling down those castles, pulling down those forts, casting down arguments. The word argument in Greek is logismo. Guess what English word we get from logismos? Logic. We are battling thoughts, ideas, beliefs, lies that people get in their head and they think it's logic, but it's a lie that's been slammed on their brain and scrambled their thinking so that they can't see the truth. So we're casting down arguments or logic and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. The word high thing there, really, really old words we never use in English anymore except in the oldest hymns. That word high thing means a rampart or a bulwark, which means the tower on the castle. That the front wall, the front wall of defense, which was the highest part of the wall where the archers would stand at the top and shoot down, that's called a bulwark or a rampart where uh, the little angled wall across the top like Legos, um, where the archers would stand in their slot and shoot, um, that's, that's the rampart. Paul says we are pulling down fortresses, we're pulling down people's logic and their high walls that they've built around themselves that exalt itself against the knowledge of God. Notice the word knowledge. We've got the word logic and we've got the word knowledge, bringing every thought. We've also got the word thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ, being ready to punish all the disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. So there's lots of warfare terms in this passage, but also there, Paul says we're not primarily demon hunting. We're not going around binding spirits and whacking people on the forehead, trying to whack the demon out of them. We're, we're fighting in the realm of what they believe, what they have thought. These lies that they have built walls out of to protect themselves from God. I'm untouchable. I live here in my fort and God ain't getting to me. I'm going to live my life my way. I'm going to do what I want with my time and my money and my priorities. I'm not giving in. I'm not admitting I'm wrong. I'm, not, I'm never surrendering. I'm going to live in this fort forever. Know anybody like that? Hmm. Maybe some people in this room. This is the same passage, but in a different translation. We're human, but we don't wage war as humans do. We use God's mighty weapons, not worldly weapons, to knock down the strongholds of human reasoning and to destroy false arguments. We destroy every proud obstacle that keeps people from knowing God. And we capture their rebellious thoughts and teach them to obey Christ. And after you have become fully obedient, we will punish everyone who remains disobedient. So the stronghold is this fort of thoughts. It's a... The King James translates the word arguments, imaginations. So there are people who, who are locked up in crazy imaginations. You know somebody who's, who's uh, suspicious or even um, paranoid? Like no matter what you tell them, everybody's against them. And, and you get people who are paranoid or the people who thought that Trump secretly won the election and was going to come back in January and swoop in with the army and take over. And like, no matter what we told them, that's not reality. Like, you just couldn't get through to them. And no matter how many times their internet prophets told them that was what's going to happen, they just, and it never did happen, they just kept believing. It's delusion. Some of you aren't nodding on that one. <laughs> I'll just keep moving right along. We're, we're battling 
castles, fortresses of logic and beliefs and knowledge and thoughts and it's a fortified wall on people's minds around their heart. And that's an old world example that Paul uses in the Bible. The example God gave me, a much more modern uh, example, is the, the motorcycle helmet. Just, it's just completely surrounded in cases their head and their face. So everything this person sees, not only are they, is their thinking scrambled, but everything they see has to come through that demon. So they interpret everything wrong because everything they see is through that front visor on their helmet that colors everything they receive coming from the outside world. And what I saw was not just that, that their, this person was, being, was killed, his thinking was scrambled and, and now the lie encases his, his head, but the lie was alive. It wasn't just a thought. It was intentionally lying to him. It was intentionally killing him. It was a demon. It was terrifying, actually. These illustrations don't live up to how wicked this thing I saw in my dream was. So whether the person originally had the thought out of fear or pride or self-protection or greed or offense or was just lied to, the way we think becomes a fortress. It becomes walls that trap us and then and because of events and circumstances and memories and feelings and abuse and unforgiveness and misunderstandings and assumptions we make out of other people, we just, we just begin to have a, these things that aren't true in our head. And they're not just in our head, but they're on it and around it and it locks us in a way of thinking and we develop colored lenses that we see life through a lens of self-protection or a lens of greed or a lens of lust or, or a lens of paranoia or a lens of depression. This, this thing that's in front of our eyes and, we, and, and everything becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy because, see, I knew, everybody, I knew nobody loved me and, and this proves it. And everything that everybody does, these people can't get outside of their helmet. They can't see reality. And so everything everybody does proves to them that what they already think is right. If, the, if a person's got a rebellious spirit locked on their head, then everything anybody does is going to be trying to control them. And that whole world, the whole life is just a fight. And they, they don't see love, they don't see protection, they don't see humility and submission. And, and so it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy and that grows synapses in our brains and and that creates habits and subconscious thoughts and addictions and secrets and darkness and eventually death. And that, that couple that wanted to kill this man, they were very happy. They had totally succeeded in destroying him, even though he didn't physically die. And so, a couple examples of what it looks what this looks like. Sometimes these strongholds are just the home of your heart, things that you've built to protect yourself because of hurts and past abuses and, or lies that you've picked up from the way your parents raised you or the entertainment world or whatever. But sometimes it's just you in that castle and sometimes some friends move in. Friends from hell. I mean, demons. And here's a difference um, that I want to illustrate for you. Sometimes it's just you need to realize, man, I'm seeing through some, I'm seeing through a visor here. I 
I'm looking at the world wrong, and other times you realize, like, like I, my whole thinking is messed up, and, and I got a friend that talks to me, and I don't necessarily mean you hear voices, you might, but uh, two examples from my daughter Freedom's life. So, so a few weeks ago, I told you about Freedom calling me when, from, from Kansas City when she was 19 years old, and she's heaving sobs, and I think something terrible is wrong, and, and and she said, Dad, I, want, I need you to forgive me for my rebellion when I was in high school. And I was, I was, I was so shocking, I, I laughed. She was so moved in repentance for the rebellion that was in her heart when she was in high school. And I'm like, honey, you were a dream teenager. As far as teenagers go, you were a dream. I mean, I'm not, I'm not perfect at all. But anyway, she's like, but Dad, I was like, honey, you, you weren't sneaking out at night. And you, were, you, you didn't fight Mom and Dad and and lie to us and, and do all the things that a lot of them do. And you, you were obedient. And she's like, Dad, but Dad, I didn't want to. <laughs> and she's repenting for not brokenhearted, for not wanting to obey. So, so she's 19. This is, and yeah, her, her junior and senior year, she'd gotten some senioritis and some that independence that gets into every teenager. And mom, I'm 17 now. What does mom know? you know, kind of stuff, and, you know, I'm 18, and my dad knows nothing, and by the time you're 25, you realize dad has learned a lot since you were 18. Um, Mark Twain says, when I, was, when I was 17, I couldn't stand to be in my dad's presence. He was such an idiot. By the time I was 24, it was amazing how much that man had learned in those few years. <laughs> so, in her own mind, in her own thinking, in her feelings, when she's 17, she's looking through that visor of independence and a little bit of rebellion and I want to do what I want to do and whatever mom and dad do, she's just certain that that's wrong and controlling and, and I don't want to do that and I want to do my own thing. And, and then, so what, ha- what had happened to her is that she, that visor, Jesus said, pulled that veil away and she'd seen clearly herself, her own sin, her attitude, and she was really, really sorry and really brokenhearted about it. So I told you that one a couple weeks ago. That's just, that's just, that was really easy, simple freedom and forgiveness and really easy. But uh, there's another example, and I called her up this week to ask her. I said, I need to ask your permission to use you as a sermon example again this week. And she was this long sigh. She's like, don't you have any other children? (laughs) And I said, well, I used Aaron last week, so um, it probably is harvest turn, but. She says, no, that's fine. Okay, so after she broke her leg two years ago, she began to have some really serious emotional troubles. Don't know exactly what all that was, but uh, it, was, it was pretty bad. And um, she began to go through, at IHOP in Kansas City, she began to go through their program called Living Waters, which is a six-month Sozo-like program, a deliverance, uh, inner healing program. And... During that time, several months ago, I don't know, four or five months ago, she called me one night and she, she says, Dad, I think I have had a spirit of fear all my life. And I said, yes, you have. From the time she was an infant, she was terrified of things that made no rational sense. Um, terrified in a way that none of our other kids were. As babies and toddlers, she wouldn't lay down in a bed on her own. She wouldn't stay in a car seat. She'd cry so hard she'd pass out in the car seat. Um, when Sarah would need to leave later on when she's a toddler, 
I would have to hold her and she would scream and claw and bite. And um, I just, I have some horrendous memories of her terror that made absolutely no sense. And then growing up, she's shy, she's even socially terrified, uh, and grew out of that and made herself do things and be brave and talk to people and engage and school helped that and, and so on. But, but she's going through this, this program and, she's like, and, and all of a sudden... It's a process, but it's a moment where, God, I don't know, Jesus gets her outside of herself and she sees herself for the first time. She's like, I've been wearing a helmet the whole time. Like these things I've been scared of are not reality. They're, it's unnecessary. It isn't real. There wasn't anything to be scared of, but I'm looking through this visor. And it, she says it was a spirit of fear. It wasn't just a sin that she needed to repent of. She was bound up by this thing that yanked her chain whenever it wanted. And she's gotten free from that, and praise the Lord. She was living in a stronghold. But if you're living in that stronghold, if your head's in that helmet, and your thoughts are encased in that, and everything you see and everything you say comes in and out of that demon, that's going to require more than, a, more than just a debate or an argument or a convincing if you're dealing with this in yourself or with somebody you know, somebody you love, um, there are people that we, we love and we help them and we serve them and we take care of them and, and some people that gets through to and some people it doesn't. So then we're, we're given scripture and we're preaching the gospel and they're resisting and so there's debate and there's convince and there's trying to get them to understand and sometimes that works but then there's other people who are just so encased in a lie that they're unreachable. There is no realization or revelation. So if you've got a rebellious child or grandchild, an impossible relative, an unreachable friend, an unbelieving parent, a foul co-worker that you just can't get through to, a student who's driving you crazy, and you want so badly for this person to be saved, you want so badly for this relationship to be peaceful and even maybe rational, but they just won't listen. Or you know that they know what's right, but they just cannot do it. They just can't, can't do it. That lying helmet is so affixed to their head that everything they see through that demonic visor is skewed. It's all wrong. So my question for us to answer today is how in the world do we get inside there? How do we get inside that castle? How do we get inside that helmet where the real person is? But even if we did, their brain is scrambled by those knives and they can't think straight. How in the world do we do this? Well, I have a Bible story for you, one I've never preached on before. Some of you will have read it on your own. Some of you have never heard this story before. It's in Chronicles and Samuel, and we're going to read uh, both depictions of this story from the life of King David uh, because it get, both of them give details that we need to know. So 1 Chronicles 11, 4-9. This is when David is uh, in his 30s. He's a very young king. He's a brand new king. And Jerusalem, the city, doesn't even belong to the nation of Israel yet. It belongs to a holdout of Canaanites called, named the Jebusites, and the name of the city is Jabus, 
And he is going to take this one last city that is yet unconquered in the promised land. So, 1 Chronicles 11, 4-9, And David and his army went to Jabus, which is Jerusalem, where the Jebusites were, the inhabitants of the land. But the inhabitants of Jabus said to David, You shall not come in here. And nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. And David said, Whoever attacks the Jebusites first shall be chief and captain. And Joab, the son of Zariah, Zariah is David's oldest sister, She's maybe even as old as like 15 years older than him. So Joab is David's nephew, but Joab is older than David. Joab is in his upper 30s. David's around 30, 35. Uh, And Joab's a little older, but it's David's nephew. Joab, the son of Zariah, went up first and became chief. And then David dwelt in the stronghold. Therefore, they called it the city of David, and he built the city around it. And Joab repaired the rest of the city. So David went on and became great, and the Lord of hosts was with him. All right, same story in 2 Samuel 5, 6 to 10. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who spoke to David, saying, You shall not come in here. The blind and the lame will repel you. All right, so let's pause here, and and I want to set the scene for you. The city of Jabus, which is now Jerusalem, inhabited by the last Canaanites to live in the land. It's been 200 years since Joshua came into the promised land, but this castle, this fortress, this city is so well guarded that for 200 years nobody has been able to take this city. None of the people in Judges, Samuel, even King Saul had not been able to break down the walls of this city and get in. And uh, David decides, I'm going to take it. It's an insult to God that these Canaanites are left in our land and we're not going to let them live here in peace anymore. And they're standing at the top of their wall, and they are so confident in their defenses. They are so confident that their city is impregnable that they're standing up there saying, even our blind and our deaf and our lame men could defend this city from you. And the Jews have a story uh, apart from this uh, scripture that says that that's who they put on the wall. They put all of the lame and paralyzed men and the deaf and the blind men up as guards on the wall to mock King David. Like, you're not getting in here. And it's so, because we're so strong, we're so well defended that we don't even need to defend ourselves. You just can't get in because of our walls. You with me? All right. So they said, the blind and the lame will repel you, thinking David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David. Now David said on that day, whoever climbs up by way of the water shaft and defeats the Jebusites, he shall be chief and captain. And then David dwelled in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built all around from the millow and inward. So David went on and became great, and the Lord God of hosts was with him. All right, this version from 2 Samuel gives us one detail that Chronicles didn't. And in Chronicles, David says, all right, he says to his whole army, whoever wants to go attack the city first, you become chief. And it says Joab attacked. Well, there's a lot of details there that this is a really cool story, but you read these little six verses and you're like, it doesn't sound all that interesting. But this version here in 2 Samuel tells us that David says, whoever climbs up the water shaft. Well, if you don't know what the water shaft is, you don't know how awesome this is. Joab is like James Bond, Jason Bourne, superhero. I mean, what Joab does here when you find out what this water shaft is, it's, it's unbelievable that anybody could do this, much less live through it. Um, so the city is impregnable. The gates are, they cannot break them down with a battering ram. Um, the city is, nobody has ever been able to take this city. It's a strong, stronghold. 
He ain't getting in. Some of the walls of Jabus are still left in Jerusalem. This is one of them. This is the Canaanite wall from the city of Jabus before it was Jerusalem. Um, the next one is another piece of the Jabus wall that's still left. And the next one is a picture. And I just want you to notice how steep it is. The, the heart of the city of Jerusalem, what is called the city of David, if you go to the temple complex where Solomon's temple was and, and where his palace was, what's called Zion or the city of David in Scripture, if you go there, it's, it's, a, it's a peninsula of a hill. It's a flat-topped hill with cliffs on three sides. And all the Canaanites had to do was build these unclimbable walls on the side of this very steep hill, this hill that was so steep anyway that it would have been pretty easy to defend, and then they built these walls on it. And nobody had ever been able to do it. The next picture is an artist rendering of what Jabus might have looked like. A very, very steep hillside with a wall around the bottom of it. The top is where the temple and the palace are today. The wailing wall, the Jews' wailing wall, and so on. But, but down here at the bottom of the hill um, was, was the wall. And next picture, yes. The pictures of the rocks that I just showed you that are left over are actually these two walls here on the end of, the wall goes around the city of Jabus, but then there's these two little jutting outposts of wall. Because at the bottom of that hill is the Gion Spring, and in, you'll read about the Gion Spring in Scripture. In Psalms, it always represents the river that comes from the throne of God. It's the stream that never dries up, and then the water always flows. And It was the water supply for the city, so it had to be inside the wall. But it's so far out from the city wall that they built this, this little peninsula of wall out of, off the main city, encircled that, that spring, so that they would always have water when the enemy army would come and siege the walls. And they could last, in fact, in Jerusalem against Nebuchadnezzar, they lasted a year and a half because they had water. It was the Gion Spring. So what they did, they built the wall out around the spring here at the bottom of the hill. And then they built a tunnel from the spring back under the hill so that the water in, would sit clear back in the hill. It still had to flow down the, down the creek. So most of the water is going down the creek, but they built this pool way back into the side of the hill where it could never be attacked, where it could never be a vulnerability for their city. And then they drilled down from the top of the hill down to that pool, 42 feet. There was a 42-foot vertical shaft down where they'd let their bucket down with a rope, and, they, and, and when they couldn't leave their city wall, they could always have water. They would go, there was about a hundred yard underground tunnel that they cut out of solid stone, made steps down to this shaft, and then they would lower their buckets down and then pull them up and they'd have their water and they'd never have to leave the city wall or even go outside, they're underground. And, and no amount of bombardment, catapults and so on, was going to ever uh, cave in their water supply because it was so far back in the hill. So when David says, okay, Nobody's ever been able to get into this city. We've tried battering rams, we've tried catapults, we've tried archers, we've tried, you know, t flaming torch, tar, arrows, you know, whatever. They, don't, they have one vulnerability. We're going to have to go up the water shaft. Well, how are you going to get in there? David says, well, the, the, the man who can figure it out and the man who does it gets to be chief and captain. And so Joab figures out somehow either the creek from the spring either flowed through a drain system but that was likely a series of really small holes that no man could crawl through because they wouldn't have made a vulnerability there at ground level. He's going to have to scale that wall 
guards and all, go up and over, get in the spring, in the pitch dark, swim through that solid rock tunnel between the spring and the pool that they carved back into the back of the hill. And now he's at the bottom of a 42-foot shaft of smooth, solid rock that's too wide. You can't Spider-Man your way up. And it's probably wet and slimy and mossy, but somehow in the total dark, without making any noise, he's got to get up that thing and hope that nobody comes for water and hope that nobody, no guard is there. And then he's got to go up this tunnel, one man wide, and go, come up into the surface inside the city wall all by himself. And you know there's guards there. There's people everywhere. He's got, then he's got to make his way back to the city gate where there's got to be hundreds of men. And he's got to open the gate for David and his men to storm in. Joab's like, I'll do it. Certainty of death, small chance of success. What are we waiting for? Let's do it. And Joab does it. We don't have no details, but we know exactly the obstacles he had to overcome. We had to know what he had to crawl through and what he had to do. And he does it. And because it, it's just, it's hilarious how matter-of-factly the Bible states it, and David took the stronghold. But I mean, if Hollywood made a movie out of this, th this would be a really intense, really exciting movie to follow Joab as he does this thing where he swims in the tunnel and who knows how tight that was and it's all in the dark and he's got to figure out how to get up the shaft and, and then he's got to fight his way or sneak his way one around through the city where he's never been. Uh, he's got to figure out how to get to the city gate and then those things weren't small. They weren't made to be opened by one man. They certainly weren't made to be opened by one man with a sword in each hand. It's just absolutely astounding that he did this at all, that he got it done, but he did. So David, representing Jesus, takes the impregnable stronghold, the one that nobody else can get through, the one nobody else can get into. There's always a back door. There's always a vulnerability. Hell cannot make a stronghold in a person's life that, that can't come off. So the Canaanites always represent demons. In every Canaanite story of the promised land, the Canaanites always represent demons. And Jebus is the strongest stronghold, period. The last one to be taken. Like this, this is the stronghold no one else can do except Jesus. And Jesus, David, says, we second in command, whoever gets this done. Well, and I may be wrong, but in my mind, that's the Holy Spirit. Come on, this is the Holy Spirit coming in the back door, coming up the stronghold from a deeper part of the Spirit where into somebody who is absolutely unreachable with logic and convincing and even their own troubles that they create themselves. They just, everything is, is inside that helmet, but Jesus can get in there. And then it says, and David made his home in the stronghold. David evicted the Canaanites and moved in himself. Jesus kicks the demons out and moves in himself. The, these people, whether that's you or your loved one, they are not unsavable. They're not unreachable. But only by Jesus. Only by the Holy Spirit. So, so while Joab is doing what he's doing, David... David just has to call off the battle. Like, and some of you just need to do that. 
just need to call off the battle. You've been trying to convince and convince and preach and, and all the things you're doing to reach this person and get them to see the truth. Just, just call off the battle. Just, just stop. All right, this, this isn't going to happen by force. It isn't going to happen by convincing. It isn't going to happen by argument. It isn't going to happen by logic. Rationale cannot reach this person. But the Holy Spirit can. So we're just going to stop and we're going to say, Holy Spirit, you figure out how to get in there. You go up the water shaft and open the doors from the inside. And I will run in and help you set this city free. Amen. Amen. Wait for Joab to open the gate. All right? Yes, love them. Yes, speak scripture. Yes, draw boundaries. Yes, serve and forgive. And yes, maintain relationship. And yes, present the gospel. Because some people's strongholds, their defenses are really weak. They want to be free. They know something's wrong and they want to be free. And you'd give them three or four scripture verses and they crumble. Oh, yes, I'm wrong. I'm sorry. Oh, God, forgive me. Please, please save me. You know, they're really soft-hearted and, and willing to be saved and willing to admit that they need help. Other people are more resistant, and it's not wrong to use force. It isn't wrong. The disciples came into a city, and they preached with force, and they caused conflict, and they didn't back down because people got angry at them. So it's not wrong to just keep preaching the gospel, keep presenting the truth, but sometimes you're just, you're just banging your head against a wall, and it'd be a lot better to use some subterfuge rather than force. And the subterfuge is, is the Spirit of God. The strongholds that just, you just cannot break through. Uh, you're just not going to. Because the person doesn't want to be free, or they're scared to be free, or they don't even know that they're not free. They think they are and that you're the bad guy. Those strongholds are much more difficult to break through. So perhaps stop the frontal attack. Cease the conflict and ask the Holy Spirit to sneak in the back door and open them up from behind. And then you be ready for that, to swoop in when that happens, to set them free. Because, remember, like freedom, it was a total shock to her to realize that her thoughts and her feelings were not her. That that was something separate from her own mind and spirit. And that she'd been actually been living with the enemy all along. And that this thing that had been lying to her on purpose, she thought that was her own feelings. This is my own thoughts. This is the way the world really is. And it's a real shock to people who realize something, even through, even through professional counseling or deliverance or just the revelation of the Spirit of God. It is they like, whoa, I've never seen reality before. I don't know how to process this. So you're going to have to be gentle and Kind and loving, but also you may have to be forceful and unwavering, and, but, but be safe. Last scripture, 2 Corinthians 3.14, the people's minds were hardened, but this veil can only be removed in Christ. Zechariah 4.6 says, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit. These folks are uh, available to pray with you if we would love to... Pray with you, pray for you, pray for your loved one. Paul says the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God to the pulling down of strongholds. Some of you have an addiction or a way of thinking or a depression and anxiety, a fear, uh, 
an anger, an unforgiveness, a lust that, you, that binds you, you need to get free from. Some of you, it's a loved one, like a child or a grandchild, or maybe a spouse, a coworker, a friend, that you, you, you can pray for them yourself, yes, but we would love to pray with you.